On behalf of my confreres amongst the Belmont Abbey, it's a pleasure to welcome you to our home. I appreciate your coming here and finding here a suitable and congenial place for your work. And please know we're happy to have you with us. By the time I finish tonight, you might be uh, thinking that the Lord is good in his provident care and the fact that I wasn't able to teach as I wanted to, but we'll see. I was asked to give a little uh, introduction to the history of Belmont Abbey. It's a little bit unique in American Catholic history. Um, there were two brothers, Irish-born Catholic priests, who had come to the Diocese of Charleston, South Carolina, which is one of the oldest Catholic dioceses in the country. One of them, Jeremiah O'Connell, had started a school in Columbia, South Carolina, which did not survive the anti-Catholic prejudice there, nor the Catholic General Sherman. So he came up here to, Char uh, to a Charlotte, uh, where his brother, Lawrence, was the pastor at St. Peter's Catholic Church on Tryon Street, same location, different, church, different building now. And he would travel by horseback and buggy to visit the few and scattered Catholics in the Western Carolinas. And on one of his visits, he was at what is the oldest standing Catholic church in North Carolina in its original form, St. Joseph's, which is about seven miles north of here. It had been founded in about 1847 by a community of Irish gold miners. As you may know, commercial gold mining in the United States actually began just northeast of Charlotte. So the gold miners there had built this church, St. Joseph's, and that was one of his circuit stops. And during that time, this property came up for bankruptcy auction in the difficult economic times following the Civil War. So Father Jeremiah thought, well, here's another chance. So he wanted to found a school and have a religious community come as a somewhat focal point for the few and scattered Catholics in the Western Carolinas. So he came to the auction. He was outbid, but he had the cash. So for his $10, he got roughly the 700 acres, which are the property of Belmont Abbey today. The problem was getting a religious community to come here because, in fact, there were no Catholics in the area. They applied to the Benedictine monks at St. Vincent Abbey in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, just east of Pittsburgh. The Benedictines had come to North America in the 1840s to minister to German-speaking immigrant Catholics, as most of the Catholic clergy at that time were French or English-speaking. And they looked back to the 8th century when Anglo-Saxon monks and nuns had gone from the British Isles to the European continent and founded monasteries as centers of evangelization. And they thought, why don't we do that now in the, the 19th century? However, there were no German Catholics here, so they turned it down. For reasons we don't know, they reconsidered. And on April 21st in 1876, one of their monks, who was pastor of the German Catholic parish in Richmond, arrived with two students. They were met by Father O'Connell at the what was then Garibaldi Station, now Belmont, uh, down by the current railroad tracks, came up to the log cabin and few wooden farm buildings which were on the property, and evidently, to the undying delight of those two students, had class that day. That began the monastery and the college. As uh, the way we found new monasteries, as the community establishes a small foundation and would become self-sustaining, it breaks off and becomes an independent Benedictine community. 
This community hadn't become self-sustaining, but the abbot back there in Pennsylvania decided it was time. So in 1884, he had the community there elect the abbot of this place, and also St. Mary's Abbey in Newark, New Jersey. So the, the monks there came in from their parishes and wherever they were, elected the abbots of two places. The one elected here happened to be in Savannah at the time. And he cabled back a few days later, declining the honor. Understandably so, as the place was not self-sustaining. So what does one do in that case? Well, the abbot up there in Pennsylvania got eight monks who agreed to come here, and they elected a ninth. Good strategy to build up the community. Leo Hayde, who became the first abbot, sight unseen of what his biographer calls the minor disaster in North Carolina. So they arrived here. Shortly thereafter, uh, the good men in Pennsylvania turned over what they call the Southern Missions to this newly established abbey, which was struggling to survive. And the Holy See saw its difficulty of having a resident Catholic bishop in North Carolina solved, because here was a monastery that could support the man. So the first abbot, Leo Hayde, after whom this is named, this, this structure, became the Vicar Apostolic of North Carolina, which is the Bishop of a Mission Territory. There was no organized diocese in North Carolina at the time. So our beginnings meant to try to establish a fledgling monastery and school here. We founded four other monasteries in the southeast, in Florida, Georgia, and two in Virginia, which still exist today, and to found the Catholic parishes, particularly in western North Carolina. And at that period, there were about 800 Catholics in the state of North Carolina. And for most of Belmont Abbey's history, Roman Catholics made up less than one half of 1% of the population of the state. It was the lowest in the United States. Uh, so it's not a very uh, usual place where you would found a monastery, but by the grace of God, we've, we've continued. Unique in Catholic history in the United States, this was once an abbey diocese. Uh, in 1910, eight counties from this county west were separated out of the state of North Carolina and placed under the jurisdiction of the abbots of North Carolina, of abbots of Belmont. And that um, was gradually reduced, and in 1977, that status was discontinued as our life is not really to do parochial work living individually. <clears throat> and that was our discernment that uh, we really came to live Benedictine community life. Our work then has been education and the foundations, the priories founded by this community, and the monks here at Belmont Abbey, establishing initially a preparatory school and junior college in the 1950s. The junior college became what it is today, Belmont Abbey College, and the um, prep school was closed. So it's been pastoral work and the Catholics in the Southeast and education are the outreaches after the witness of our Benedictine community life. So that's a little bit in a nutshell of who we are. But when I, I've heard with, when I was asked to speak of the Ciceronian Society before, before Josh Bowman contacted me last August and invited me to address you this evening, an invitation for which I'm grateful. The topic he suggested was an introduction to the Abbey, the college, its history, and its ministry, keeping in mind the importance of place. The first part of this assignment was easy, but I was intrigued about the importance of place. 
since I needed to learn more about your society. In any case, that led me to your website. And there I was surprised to find, under the bold heading, Welcome to the Ciceronian Society, the subheading, Tradition, Place, and Things Divine. The surprise continued as I read the first sentence of the homepage text, Tradition, a sense of place, and an appreciation of and sensitivity to the sacred are central to the cultivation of an enduring, free, and peaceful society. This was followed by, and I quote, a liturgy of courage, affection, rootedness, peace, faith, and hope is desperately needed. I thought, these people are Benedictines. They just don't know it. <laughs> so allow me to introduce you to the rule of Benedict and the way of life it has informed for nearly a millennium and a half. Although we do not have the exact dates for Benedict's birth and death, he is traditionally considered as having lived from 480 till around 547. Thus, his life spans the closing years in the first half of the, of the fifth century and the first half of the sixth century. It's a long time ago. To say it was a tumultuous time would be an understatement. We have a life of St. Benedict, which forms the second book of the work called The Dialogues because of its literary form. It is generally attributed to St. Gregory the Great, who would have written it about a half a century after Benedict's death. Although it is not intended in any sense to be a modern biography, it is generally plausible in its chronology and geographical information. The only surviving document from Benedict himself is his rule which consists of a prologue and 73 chapters, some of which are simply a brief paragraph. The text of the rule is anonymous itself, but the manuscript tradition is unanimous in attributing it to the Benedict, who is the subject of book two of the dialogues attributed to Gregory the Great. Tradition has been a guiding principle in Benedictine life from the beginning, for the rule itself is a document steeped in the prior monastic tradition which had been forming in a more identifiable fashion in Christianity for the preceding three centuries. So the more significant practice and values of that monastic tradition reach back to the New Testament and the beginnings of Christianity. As a man of his time, Benedict looked to tradition as a source of what was true and good. Any fascination with novelty would likely have been quite foreign to him. As was cogently demonstrated in the latter part of the last century, a good part of Benedict's rule has been copied, often verbatim, from an earlier monastic rule, albeit with significant modifications and rearrangements. We would call this plagiarism. He would have seen it as a sign of respect. In the final chapter of the rule, suitably entitled, that the entire observation of justice has not been set up in this rule, he describes his own work as a little rule for beginners and directs those of his monks who are hastening on to the perfection of monastic life to look to the sources from which he himself had drawn. First and foremost of all, he indicate, indicates the books of the Old and New Testaments, which he designates as the truest guides for human life. These books of scripture themselves, of course, in their content and understanding, are themselves the product of a tradition. Furthermore, he directs us to the teachings of the Holy Fathers, that is, the fathers of both the monastic as well as the larger church tradition. He cites their institutes and conferences, undoubtedly those of John Cashin, as well as the rule of our Holy Father Basil. 
In the later chapters of the rule, it is clear that St. Augustine is a significant influence. Indeed, by directing us to these great teachers, he seems to be doing nothing more than following the example of St. Augustine, who had once written, though in a text likely unknown to Benedict, but I set you within your heart before those judges, the holy and in the holy church, illustrious teachers of God. What they found in the church, they held fast. What they had learned, they taught. What they had received from their fathers, this they taught to their sons. The very fact that we're here this evening at Belmont Abbey is a witness to the significance and importance of tradition. It is nothing short of amazing that this brief text, the Rule of St. Benedict, has been observed daily without interruption by monastic men and women since the mid-500s. It is yet more amazing if one stops to ponder the variety of the economic, social, political, and ecclesiastical contingencies in which this rule has been lived for that near millennium and a half, not to mention the Black Plague, the Reformation, the Wars of Religion, the Enlightenment, Napoleon, two world wars, and COVID. Here we are. We are at a college sponsored by a community of Benedictine monks. In fact, in the monastery, as the table reading for the evening meal began this evening, according to the prescription of the rule, it will begin, as it does every evening, with an excerpt from the text of the rule, which we read every night. Tonight, in case you're curious, it's the conclusion to chapter 31 on the cellarer of the monastery. It sometimes surprises people when they find out that there really are live monks here. They sort of thought we had died out in the 15th century. I suspect it must be something like coming suddenly upon a brontosaurus calmly feeding on the weeds of your town lake. The fact that St. Benedict's rule continues to shape the daily life of Benedictine men and women today is because these men and women have been rooted in a tradition. You can well imagine that there are parts of the rule which are not literally observed today. In fact, they may have been literally observed only at Monte Cassino in the 6th century when St. Benedict was the abbot there. Since then, it has been the task of Benedictine men and women continually to adapt the rule to the contingencies of time and circumstances of their own time and place. For this tradition to be a living tradition, it is continually necessary to identify what the values were which St. Benedict had received from his sources and enshrined in various ways in his text, to question whether these values are still relevant today, and if they are judged to be still relevant, to discern how to live them authentically in the circumstances of the present age. It is because of this continual adaptation that the rule remains a living spiritual testament and a guide to daily living for monastic men and women today. I propose that to be rooted in a tradition in this way is different from being stuck in one. In the latter instance, one clings to the outward forms of an imagined golden age in the past, more for the purpose of assuaging one's own anxieties and needs than for bringing those values once preserved in those forms into an effective and transformative engagement with the contemporary age. 
I suggest that the same dynamic of continual evaluation and adaptation is necessary for any tradition to remain a vibrant and living force and to bring those time-tested and certain values into a vibrant impact on the contemporary culture. Allow me, though, to skip to the third point of your website statement, namely, an appreciation of and sensitivity to the sacred, before I land on a sense of place. In his chapter on the procedure for receiving brothers, which describes how new members are received into the monastic community, St. Benedict gives the following direction for the discernment of an authentic calling to this way of life. The concern must be whether the novice truly seeks God. That's the criterion. The indices for determining this are whether the novice shows an eagerness for the life and common prayer of the community, for obedience, which is St. Benedict's chief virtue, and for trials. There's no finality to life according to St. Benedict's rule other than seeking God by living, praying, and working in community for a lifetime. Benedictine men and women have, in fact, engaged in a variety of undertakings through the centuries, as I mentioned regarding the history of this abbey. They have done this because St. Benedict legislates time for work, primarily manual labor, as a good thing, and the nature of this work has developed in response to local contingencies at different times and places. Our sponsoring of this college is an example of such a response. The real work of the monks, however, is prayer. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of monastic communities and what can be a bewildering array of Roman Catholic religious orders is the extent to which we stop several day, times a day for prayer in community, in what is variously known as the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. The tradition of the liturgy of the hours has developed in part as an attempt to fulfill the apostles' injunction to pray always by stopping at set times throughout the day and thus sanctifying the entire day by times of prayer. More practically, however, and pragmatically, it interrupts life again and again stops us in our daily life and tears us away from those projects and responsibilities that can risk becoming the foundation of our identity and self-worth. And this stopping us faces us squarely with what we say we believe to be the one thing necessary, seeking God. Perhaps more important in this regard is the truly monastic prayer and foundation of monastic contemplative life, Lexio Divina. That is, the slow meditative reflection on the sacred scriptures that St. Benedict expects the monks to be engaged with for a significant period each day. This involves attention to what the text says, what it says specifically to me, and the question of what am I going to do about it, as well as time to rest in pondering this challenge and resting in God's love. This becomes the primary work by whereby we overcome self-will to seek God's will. Thus, the scriptures and the liturgy form the foundations of the spiritual life in Benedictine monasticism. This focuses our life on the revelation of God's word in the incarnation of his son, 
celebrated both in the liturgy and in the inspired word of the Bible. This forms the foundation out of which all other work proceeds. When people ask, what do monks do? I respond, we pray. For example, this college was founded not as a humanitarian outreach or for social improvement or to increase the general level of education or to prepare students for a lucrative career. The college can and does promote each of these goals to some extent, but the primary purpose for the foundation of the college by the monks was the salvation of souls. We believe that the purpose of an education, as the Maurice Benedictine Jean Mabillon said, is to train the intellect for truth and the heart for charity. That is, an intellectual and a moral foundation. To train students to seek truth, to conform to the moral demands that truth requires, and to develop their God-given talents for a life which benefits both themselves and others and prepares them for the ultimate goal of life, which is eternal life with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This finality of seeking God in Benedictine life is the reason for the motto of the Benedictines, which is pax, that is, peace. And now to the sense of place. Another distinctive characteristic of life, according to St. Benedict's rule, is a vow of stability. This vow is actually to stability in community, though it is often referred to as stability of place, since monastic communities generally stay in the same location, sometimes for centuries. Because of this stability in community to which we made our profession, Benedictines do not generally move from one community to another. Benedictine life is an intensely community-centered life, and the expectation is that we will stay in place in the monastery. St. Benedict explicitly states that the monks should not, and I quote, roam outside because this is not at all good for their souls. The damage to souls is envisioned not so much in terms of any real or imagined evils lurking out there somewhere outside the monastery, the damage rather comes from dissipation and distraction. It comes from seeking a relief from the unrelenting challenge of fraternal charity, from the goal of constantly seeking God, and from acedia. Stability thus binds us to continue and bring to completion that work we have begun, that is, seeking God by his grace, and to persevere in that task through all the inevitable setbacks difficulties and disappointments. It is always tempting to think that if I could just go to that other community where they have a holy abbot and everyone is wise and learned, I could then really flourish. So we pack up our issues, wrap them up prettily, put a bow on them, and they follow us to that new place, and then they flourish because we have not persevered in the one, ta one task over which we have perhaps some control, that is, transforming and reforming our own life and have spent most of our time trying to transform everybody else so that we can be comfortable. It is ultimately, to paraphrase the words of your website, that is, this Benedictine life, a liturgy of courage, affection, rootedness, where hope based on faith leads to peace. Because of a long permanence in one place, monasteries ideally become places of beauty, 
as order and beauty are generally more conducive to bringing one to the beauty of God than are chaos and ugliness. They also become places which others seek out for the peace they find there. Because of this stability, the rule of St. Benedict actually lives discreetly in each community. Someone once described Benedictines as a group of tribes with a common heritage. The Benedictine world is radically decentralized, yet bound together in charity. This decentralization has the danger that individual communities sink into mediocrity, while at the same time has been the strength which has allowed the Benedictine world to spring forth ever anew again from near extinction at various times over the last millennium and a half. It impacts this place in various ways. We came as Catholic monks to the least Catholic place in the country, and therefore immediately were impacted by our neighbors to whom we opened the doors of our college, which oftentimes became the first time they had ever met a Roman Catholic. And thus to the the development of that ecumenical outreach which has come to a greater and greater flourishing in recent decades. For the glory of God, thanks be to God. The bond also is in community and it characterizes the internal life of a monastery where in spite of our individual weakness and differences and the fact that we're sometimes in the old monastic bravery, it first was for omnibus militantibus sub regula beati patris benedicti, that is for all those fighting under the rule of St. Benedict, and we often question, were we fighting the devil or one another? It ultimately brings us to realize that in fact, how good and how pleasant it is where brothers dwell in unity. And on that note, I will close with a wonderful observation on really Benedictine monastic life, by the Australian Cistercian Michael Casey, who has written extensively on Benedictine life. And I quote, the view unconsciously adopted by many who have had little personal contact with real monks is that monastic life follows a tight script, allowing little leeway for members of the community to express personal differences or manifest anything approaching flair, panache, or eccentricity. We all know, of course, that this is far from the truth. Monasteries tend to provide habitat for an astonishing array of personalities, all unique characters, albeit unselfconsciously so. So I hope you realize that you are all really Benedictines with tradition, stability to place, and the reverence for the divine. Questions, problems, objections, observations, or announcements? <laughs>